0: It is our privilege to bring to you the following message, supported by the gifts and love offerings of the people of Rancho Baptist Church in Temecula, California. This message was recorded during our normal Sunday morning service times. Pastor Rick Foster is serving as our interim senior pastor here at Rancho Baptist Church. Well, Today, Rick is continuing in his What is the Church series, and it's part four in a sermon that Rick has entitled, Called to Call Out. Turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 1, and Rick is looking at verses 16 through 20. Here's Rick.
1: Over the last couple of weeks, we have been letting the Bible answer the question, what is the church? And so we've been taking almost as if it is the church in hand and turning it around and looking at it from various dimensions to be able to appreciate what it is that... God has created. So let's do a little kind of review. What have we seen so far? Well, the church is a group of people. A group of people who have been filled by the Holy Spirit. And his filling is then seen in their priorities and in their devotion, first of all, to God's word, but secondly and equally a devotion to God's people. The Holy Spirit also gives this group of people the power to pursue the ultimate purpose in life, which is to glorify God. The New Testament says there's at least seven ways in which we can do that, one of which we looked at, and that is we can glorify our God by having the right kind of a mindset towards the world in which we live. It's a mindset not of isolation, it's a mindset not of assimilation, but rather it's a mindset of penetration. In other words, just as God sent the Son into the world, we too are sent into the world. And then last week, Lou pointed out to us how the Holy Spirit also enables us to be known and to demonstrate in practical and authentic ways that we love one another. And that love is not just for those who sit in your row on a Sunday morning here in this room, but also those that you live next to, it's your neighbors, it's those that are in your sphere of influence that you see on a regular basis. And that's why Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 is such a great summary because it explains that in our love for the world, in our desire to glorify God by penetrating our world, we come to it with a message of good news. But that then raises another question. What is that message of good news? Let me invite you to take your Bibles, if you have them with you, and turn to the very first chapter of the Gospel of Mark, which, by the way, starting in February, that's going to be our next sermon series. We're going to be studying the life of Christ in the Gospel of Mark. But for this moment, we're just, this morning, we're just going to take a, a quick moment and look at just a few verses here in the opening chapter of Mark. To understand what is the good news that we are to share with the world around us. Well, that good news to the world starts with telling anyone who will listen that there is an invitation to accept. Let's look at Mark 1, starting at verse 16 to verse 20. Let me read a few verses from here. Starting at verse 16. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw Simon... And Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, come, follow me. Now jump down if you would uh, to verse 19. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them. Notice that there's an invitation that Jesus gave, and that invitation is still on the table even today, generations later. Now, don't miss something very powerful here. In extending the invitation, Jesus wants me. That's why he starts with the word, come. You know, invitations—if you know, just even the way we use them among us as as humans—is very personal in nature. It's one person reaching out to another person. So to receive an invitation means we're valued. It means we have the opportunity to get in on something that's very special, something that's probably very very good. That's why in verse 17, and by the way, the New uh, International Version has probably the best translation here, when it begins with the word, come. Because that's that's there in the Greek language. And literally, what Jesus is saying is, come on. The offer, the invitation, is to join him. See, the heart of Christianity is a relationship. The invitation of Jesus Christ to us is deeply relational. It's not about following a set of rules. It's not about having a logical philosophy of life. Rather, to follow Jesus is to enter into an ever-increasingly intimate relationship with the God of heaven as we can have it through seeing and enjoying His Son, Jesus Christ. Now let me ask, when was the last time you let that truth sink in deep? He wants you. He wants me. I find that fascinating. He wants us, even with all of our struggles, even with all of our guilt and our shame, even with all of our pride, all of our addictions, our failures, our weaknesses, our inconsistencies, even with all the things that we hide from others out of fear that if they knew about it, they would reject us. Do you know He knows all that stuff? And He still wants us. This week I was reminded of what the writer in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 11 wrote. He said, Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family, so Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Did you realize that? If you are a follower of Jesus Christ this morning here, Jesus is not ashamed. To call you one of his own. You're in the family. Now there's something else about his invitation that's important to notice. To accept it, to accept that invitation, means he wants me to choose him over everything else. Because when you look at the invitation, yeah, the first words come, but then what are the next words? Follow me. So Jesus not only says, come on, he also adds, follow me. And that phrase, follow me, literally means to physically get in line behind. Uh, almost like the, the playing the child's game, follow the leader, wherever they go, you've got to go too. Uh, but it can also indicate, that phrase, follow me, It can also indicate letting somebody else set the direction for where I'm going, even if they're not physically right in front of me. Which means to be a disciple, to be a wholehearted follower of Jesus Christ, is to settle the issue of authority. Do you realize that for so many of us, (coughs) our hearts are like a corporate boardroom there's a big table almost in our hearts, and there's, there's seats all around the table for the committee. And in our heart, there's a, there's a seat for our recreational life, there's a seat for our social life, one for our private life, one for our sexual life, one for our religious life, one for my, my work life, and, then, and many others. They're, and they're all sitting around the table. This committee is constantly arguing and debating and voting on the best course of action for us. And every seat wants what's best for them. And that's why there's rarely a unanimous decision on where we should go and what we should do next. So when we choose to follow Jesus and accept His invitation, like these guys did in Mark chapter 1, in return... We invite Jesus to come in to that boardroom in our life. But he doesn't get a seat. He's invited in to fire everybody else. So in effect, what we say is, Jesus, I give my life to you. I hand myself over to you. I'm your responsibility now. Please run my life. Those who are the church, that's our responsibility, to tell the world about the invitation of Jesus and respond to it. Now, there's a second part of the good news we share, and that is not only is there an invitation to accept, but there's a journey to take. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 6 describes it for us, but we're going to come back into Mark and see it lived out here in a moment. But Colossians 2.6, Paul says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. In other words, once we accept the invitation of Jesus, then we embark on a, on a journey with Him. For the followers of Jesus, there is the daily adventure of where the road leads us. Because we walk with him. Look at Mark 1 again. Notice the response of those who accepted the invitation. They did something. Mark 1, verse 18. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Mark 1, verse 20. They left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. That word follow describes going down the road together, walking together, accompanying somebody who takes the lead. And so the image there, as Colossians 2.6 accurately describes, is the image of walking together, going down the road with God leading. And my friends, this is not restricted just to Jesus and the twelve. It's a common image used throughout the whole Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. Walk with me. For example, Genesis chapter 5 verse 24, we're told Enoch walked with God. Genesis chapter 6 and verse 9, Noah walked with God. How about Genesis chapter 17 and verse 1? God extends an invitation to Abraham and says, walk before me and be blameless. Or David in Psalm 116 verse 9 proclaims, I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. Now it's interesting, it's also used in the opposite way, John 6 verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. For a follower of Jesus Christ, life is not random. Our days are not haphazard, or a haphazard set of events that pass through our lives and they don't have any meaning No, rather, we wake up each day to an adventure, a purposeful journey of walking down the road that Jesus has laid out for us. And one of the most thrilling aspects of this journey is the wonder of his constant presence with us. I love the way Matt Redman describes it in one of his songs that. Or is often sung in churches. It's called, the song is never once. And it goes like this. Standing on this mountaintop, looking just how far we've come, knowing that for every step you were with us. Kneeling on this battleground, seeing just how much you've done, knowing every victory is your power in us. Scars and struggles on the way. But with joy, our hearts can say, yes, our hearts can say, never once did we ever walk alone. Never once did you leave us on our own. You are faithful. God, you are faithful. So often we look at the struggles we're facing, and in our mind, Jesus is kind of over there. He's distant. He's not engaged. If some of you know me maybe better than others, you probably can sense this morning I'm a little quiet. It's because this morning my wife and I got a text from some, some about some dear friends back in High Point, and the wife took her life. It was last week. No one knew she was struggling with deep, deep depression. Yet in our pain, folks, in our sin, Jesus is standing with us. He's not over there on the other side of our sin. He's not over there on the other side of our struggles. He's standing right with you. Right with me. The reality is, in our journey with him, we have his constant presence walking along with us because he lives in us. What is the truth that Jesus and the New Testament authors have passed on to us? John fourteen twenty three. Jesus says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Paul in Ephesians chapter 3, starting at verse 14, in his powerful prayer says, I pray that He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Dwell in your hearts. Dwell in my hearts. Or how about one more? Colossians chapter 1 and verse 17. God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. What's the mystery? which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So what's our message of good news? Oh, there's an invitation to accept. There is a journey to take. But there's one more critical characteristic of our message, and that is there's a trust to develop. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, describes it. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Now, did you ever realize that everybody expresses faith? Everybody. The issue is the object of our faith. So, in other words, every day, regardless of whether you are a Christian, a Buddhist, a Muslim, an agnostic, an atheist. Everybody expresses faith. The question is just simply, what are we trusting? You all are doing it right now if you didn't know it. You believed the chair that you're sitting in would hold you up, so you believed it so much that you were willing to sit down on it. You had faith this morning that your vehicle would get you to church. So you trusted it by getting in it and starting the key, or turning the key and starting it. For some here, you believe that this that specific other person would be the perfect complement to your life, so you trusted them by joining together in marriage. The invitation of Jesus to follow him and walk together in a journey has a specific intention, following Jesus will put us in faith-developing situations. By the way, that's exactly what Jesus did with his men while he was here on earth. We'll see this when we start in our series through Mark, but let me just give you a little bit of a preview. Mark chapter 4 Jesus is out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee with his men, and a storm is threatening to sink the boats. He calms the sea. He turns to his men and says, Do you still have no... What's the word? Faith. Mark chapter 5 and verse 36, a father by the name of Jarius, His daughter is so sick, she's getting ready to die He comes to get Jesus. Jesus is delayed in joining Jairus. By the time they start heading home, word comes, the daughter has already died. Jesus looks at Jairus and says, don't fear, only believe. Mark chapter 6 and verse 6, Jesus is in his hometown, Nazareth, and he shook his head in disbelief. Well, yeah, because he marveled at their unbelief. People of his own hometown. Or probably one of the most powerful episodes in the life of Jesus, at least for me, is John chapter 9, I mean Mark chapter 9, starting at verse 22. Another dad comes to Jesus, but this time he brings the son with him, asks Jesus to heal his son. In the middle of the conversation, the boy goes into an epileptic fit. The dad, in his desperation, says, if you can do anything, help us. And Jesus says, if you can do anything, All things are possible for the one who believes. What is the dad's immediate response? I believe. Help my unbelief. See, what a dramatic change that will make in the way we approach each day. As I walk with Jesus, accepting His invitation, joining Him on this journey, I can anticipate He will want to develop my ability to trust Him, to grow and mature my faith in those times when I begin to be overcome with fear, in those times when I know I don't have the resources to meet the demands that are in front of me, in those times when maybe I have lost or I fear I'm going to lose something precious to me, in those times when I can't explain what God is doing, Jesus is going to use those to develop my trust, my faith. <clears throat> and recently I've been reminded... That the most significant area of faith development is who I am in Christ. Do I really believe that? Again, what do the scriptures say is true about us? Boy, there are some bold statements. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, behold, the new has come. So those who have trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior are no longer the person they used to be. That's a faith developing area. Or how about Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20? I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me <clears throat> and gave himself for me. And every day, we're in a battle. We've talked about this, especially this past fall, where we have an enemy who wants to deceive us. We have an enemy that wants to lie to us and get us to believe his lies rather than the truth of what God has declared over us. And one of those most critical areas of faith development in our journey is to trust what Jesus has done for us, what God has done for us in in Christ. He wants me to grow in realizing my true identity. Identity to trust more deeply that I am a new creation and the old person I once was is gone and something new is now there. He wants me to trust more deeply because of the work of God done at the cross that I am righteous in Christ. To trust more deeply as we saw again this past fall in Ephesians chapter 1. I have been chosen before I was even born. I have been adopted into the family of God. And I have been rescued from the destructive effects of sin in my life. And the incredible
0: invitation
1: of Jesus Christ is to come and be who I was always meant to be. The church is not a building. The church is not the sum total of programs. We, we are the church. So why have we been left here? <laughs> what is our purpose as those who gather in His name And then later this morning, we scatter out into the world for his name. Well, we've got a wonderful message of good news to share with the world. There is an invitation to take, or to accept, I should say. There is a journey to take, and there is a trust to develop. Now, take a moment, and let's kind of step back. And let all that we've been looking at from these scriptures kind of pile in on us for a moment. The danger that we face as Americans living here in 2018 is that when we read these kinds of stories in the New Testament of what the early church was like and how Jesus interacted with people and what we're taught about from the mouth of our Savior is that we are impressed. We are captivated by it. But at the same time, we dismiss it fairly quickly as something that happened back there and then for them. But it's not something that could really happen here and now for us. So I think it's time this morning that I tell you a story. The second church I served as an interim pastor was a 123-year-old Baptist church on the west side of Colorado Springs, Colorado. In its heyday, and its heyday was late 1950s into the middle part of the 1960s, it would have been considered at that point a mega church because it had over 1,200 people attending. But when I arrived as their interim pastor in the fall of 2012, it was down to 35 people. They were worshiping in a sanctuary that could seat well over 300. Most of those who were left were retired. The average age was 76. Average. The youngest in the church was a 32-year-old 32, 32 couple. There, in other words, there were no youth, no kids, no one in the nursery. The problem is that they had lost touch with their neighborhood, as very few of those that were still attending lived in the immediate area, and the vast majority drove to the church quite a distance because they were living in other parts of the city. There was no real energy to start new programs. I mean, what's the vigor level of 70- and 80-year-olds? No, no offense to those who are, but just that's the reality, isn't it? Offerings were not covering expenses. They were living off of a savings account that had been funded by the sale of a piece of property that had been donated to the church a number of years before. But at the current rate of spending, the church was going to burn through that in probably about 18 months. It had been a long time since they filled the baptism tank to have a baptism. No one could remember the last time anybody in the church had led someone to Christ. Few visitors came, and those that did never returned. They had a three-story educational building that was completely unused. Darkened hallways would lead you to empty rooms. When, as their interim, during the assessment phase, all this was revealed to the church leadership team, they realized they had been living in denial. And they faced, for the first time as a church, we're dying, and the clock is ticking. The sense of desperation was real. And I can still remember the night we talked all through this. And the reality hit them that there was nothing man could do that was going to change this, and it was overwhelming. And the sense of Sobriety about all of this hit. We had some prayer together, and we all went home. The very next week after all of this came um, to the surface, I received a phone call in my office from the pastor of a new church plant that met just five blocks away. He called and said, can I set up a meeting to meet with you? I said, sure. And so the chairman of the elder board and I met with him. And we found out that um, this church plant had only been in existence for five months. Um, They were currently meeting in a caterer's banquet room, but in five months they were already up to 120 people and experiencing 50% conversion growth. 50%, that's unheard of. but they were dialed into their community, the community that we shared with them. And it was a rough, edgy community. Within three blocks of our church, Bethany Baptist, there were five medical marijuana clinics. Those who lived on this side of town, everybody in the city of Colorado Springs uh, knew this is where broken people lived. People with multiple divorces, Substance abuse, criminal records, gender confusion, prostitution. That was our neighborhood. And this pastor wanted to know if they could rent some of our facilities from us during the weekdays to hold their growing recovery group meeting. So many people wanted to come. So many people were trusting Christ. They were running out of room. So the chairman of the elder board and I sat and listened to what God was doing through this new church plant just again 5 blocks away and I spoke up and said is it possible that the lord has something more in mind than for you simply to rent facilities from us could it be that for larger kingdom purposes that our two churches should merge There was surprised, dead silence. I don't think anybody knew what to do with that. That started a process. A process of both churches seeking the Lord. And six months later, that 123-year-old Baptist church voted to give all the property, all the buildings, and their savings account of over $240,000 to the church plant. They moved in, joined us, the name of Bethany Baptist disappeared and it became the sanctuary church. And on the very first Sunday, the worship center was filled with every generation. Kids were running up and down the aisles. It was chaos. They were running down the halls. And the weeks that followed, people were coming to Christ every single Sunday. Hard, broken people were learning how to walk With Jesus. And today, that church continues to reach that hard, edgy community for Christ. Let me give you one example. The last time I was in Colorado Springs, I sat down with the pastor, and he told me about a lesbian couple that came to church one Sunday, made people very uncomfortable. And these were the hard, edgy people, they were uncomfortable. At the end of the service, they both stood to trust Christ. And afterwards, one of the women went to the pastor and said, can I meet with you this coming Sunday or this coming week? When they finally got together later that week, he asked, I noticed you stood. Why? And and the pastor was thinking, he said, it was probably because of my brilliant sermon or my my vivid way of presenting the gospel. And you know what the woman's told him? It was the smells. He said, It was the smells? She said, Yeah. She said, When I walked in with my partner, and we were standing in the lobby waiting for the service to begin, someone walked by who smelled of alcohol. And she thought to herself, I know that smell. I know what you were doing last night. Then before the service started, she decided to go to the bathroom. So while she was in the bathroom, someone was already in one of the stalls. And when the woman came out, She saw her wiping her face and she smelled a vomit and this woman thought to herself, yeah, I know that smell. Back in the worship service, waiting for it to begin, someone came and sat near them and that person smelled of not having had a shower in a really long time. And the woman thought, yeah, I know that smell. She told the pastors, she told the pastor that she was meeting with, those smells made me realize I feel safe here. I'm among people who are just like me, and it allowed me to hear the gospel. You see, it is so easy for us, it's so easy for me to think that what happened in the Bible was only for those people at that time. Folks, no, it's not. The only explanation for what happened in Acts chapter 2 and throughout the rest of the chapters is that a group of people were waiting for God to act and once they were filled by the Holy Spirit, it radically changed their lives and motivated them then to move out in radical ways into their world. They knew in the New Testament their desperate dependency upon Jesus. They weren't trying to control or manage the situation. It was out of control. But what they wanted was whatever new thing the Lord was going to bring to them. And that's what happened at Bethany Baptist. A dying church, made up primarily of older, retired saints, faced the facts, confessed their desperation, Openly asked the Lord to have his way here at our church. And then they let go of what had been. And when he led, they
0: followed.
1: The interim interim season for any church is a challenge especially for one that has experienced the damaging effects of their pastor having an affair. And I know, my friends, I know that our current situation feels awkward. feels like the future is unknown, and it's unnerving to many of you. I know, I know. And yet Jesus Christ is still the head of this church. My friends, he is still building his church. So can I plead that this morning, today, is a time for us to personally and corporately admit our desperate dependence. It's time to recognize that our own resources are not anywhere close to being enough for the future God has in mind for us. It's time to let go of what was. In order that we've got the open hands, they're going to be able to embrace what He has for us. But we've got to resist the urge of trying to manage or control our situation. It's time to face the hard facts of where we really are. To cry out to the Lord that the holy fire of God from heaven would come in the Holy Spirit that He would come and renew and revive us so we can be the church that He wants us to be. And until then, we wait in prayerful expectation for him to act. So let's hang on to two verses together. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. That's the first one. The second one let's hang on to is Isaiah four four. Since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. Let's pray about this right now. Father... We are grateful to be called your people. We are grateful to be a part of your church. Jesus Christ is our head. And Father, we cry out this morning, admitting our desperate dependence, that we don't have what it takes. Only you do. And we're not going to try to compare ourselves with others. We don't want to have necessarily the expectation that what you want to do will be as dramatic externally. But we want to have the the expectancy that you will show up for us. Change our lives. Renew our hope. Revive us by your Holy Spirit. Father, we want to let go if we are clinging to anything in order that we might embrace what new thing you have for us. Something that we can't even pray about because as Paul and Ephesians tell us that you love to give us what is beyond even imagining. But we want to have that kind of expectancy. So help us to wait. Wait in that expectancy for you to act, giving you our very lives, giving you ourselves. Father, come fire the other board members in our hearts that should have no sway, no say. So we give you ourselves, we who are your church here,
0: looking forward to what you're going to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thanks for being with us today. It's always a pleasure to serve you with this CD ministry. Here at Rancho Baptist Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples who love God, love others, and live to reach their world for Christ. And if you have any questions regarding this sermon, or just perhaps knowing God in a deeper way, don't hesitate to give us a call. Our phone number is area code 951-676-2911. Or you can reach us on the web at www.ranchobaptistchurch.org. That's www.ranchobaptistchurch.org. Have a great day in the Lord, and God bless you as you continue to walk with Him.